You guys feel so far away. Haha, -ha, you thought you'd have a distance staying at the back of the room. I'm coming to you. <laughs> Do you want to start? Sure. Okay. Yeah, so I'm Jeanette Anderson. So I am the director of HR for River Valley Church. So we um, are multi-site. So our headquarters, what we call our central ministries, is in Burnsville. And then we have nine campuses in the Twin Cities area. Um, and I've been in my role for eight years. I'm with uh, Emmanuel. I'm Tamara Peterson, the Director of Human Resources there. And we have four locations plus an online campus. And um, happy to be here. Excited you guys are here. And I think with this size group, um, I'm looking forward to the fact that we can talk individually. I can hear your needs. Danette can answer questions you might have because I'm sure there's a reason you came here today. Either you've been doing it and you have questions or you're about to be doing human resources and you have questions. And so we want to customize it to you guys since we do have a friendly size group here. Um, I'm going to give you a high view of the subjects that we're going to talk about and then we'll get started. Um, we're going to talk about legal compliance. We're going to talk about um, salary versus a vendor, so how you classify employees. We're going to give a little overview of the must-have forms as you hire so that you're in compliance with the Minnesota Department of Labor and IRS guidelines as much as we can, we can do for you today. Um, we're going to talk about total rewards compensation, how you compensate your staff and the culture that you build. Uh, the philosophy behind that, and then other benefits that you might want to consider as you build your human resource department. And um, then we'll get into a little bit about staff values, your mission statements, and code of conduct, and we'll have a question and answer time at the end here so that you can ask the questions that are specific to you. We also have some resources at the front here. Everything we're going to talk about, the forms that we reference, you can go grab up at the table and we can help you get what you need. All right. Yeah. So um, just so you kind of know, as we said, there are so many things we could cover in HR, right? And we didn't know what would be the need. So we truly tried to identify those things that we feel like we get questions a lot with other communities. Like, I've just been asked to do HR and I don't know what I'm doing. So we're, we're, we're going to kind of throw a bunch at you, but we do want to leave more of an extended Q&A. So I know we did the, the title was HR Q&A or Human Resources. Um, that is our intent, is really to just give you really high-level, quick hits, and then we'll jump into Q&A. But we always have to do the caveat, we are not employment attorneys. We are not legal representatives, right? We are here as fellow practitioners just trying to help other churches as much as whatever we've learned that we can share with you, we want to share with you. So um, there'll be a few times where we might say, like, hey, refer to an employment attorney. We'll give you our what we've done, and but we always want to give that caveat that we are not legal professional. <laughs> All right, so going to do a high view of the essential documents. If you are, um, can you guys share what size of staff you guys have? Um, about 15. 15? Um, three. Three? Eight. Two? Well, it's funny, we have a church in the daycare, so staff on the church Okay, so three on staff with an additional eight that are paid through the church in the daycare setting. Okay, great. Welcome. Come on in. Um, we're talking about um, church sizes, where you're at, how many staff you have on your team. How about you guys? Three. Three. Okay. Okay. 
Great, great. How many staff do you have on your church? Seven full-time, okay, all right, great. Well, this is gonna be applicable to all of you. So you've already done some hiring, you've done a little bit of it, but we wanna make sure that your HR file, your personnel file on each employee has at least this minimum, this minimum uh, content. And this list, I'm going off of the resource list here. This is available for you um, with the high points. So first of all, of course, your W-4. Um, you can find that at irs.gov. If you have other forms and you're not sure if they're current, Google W4 2023 and make sure there's a .gov after it and you'll be good, print that out. Um, pro tips, do not, as we've said, do not give tax advice to your employees. It's tempting because you know more than they do probably, but don't give tax advice to your employees. Um, refer them to a tax professional and the employee should complete your w, their W-4, not you. They might say, oh, you know, here's what I want, this is what I always do, slide them the form. And then when they sign it, keep it in their um, file, and if they make changes, same thing, don't make changes, give them a fresh W-4 to complete. It might even be in the next tax year, so the form could have changed. And there were a lot of changes from 2022 to 2023. So you, if you have employees that might come to you and be saying, hey, I had to pay in this year and I didn't have to pay in last year, but my income did not change, refer them to the government website, tell them the tax table did change, you're nodding your head, our legal <laughs> representation in the room is like, yes. So refer them there, then you're safe. Um, then the I-9 is the next form that you wanna make sure you have in your bucket list. Um, the I-9 is monitored by the Immigration and Customs Enforcement or Homeland Security and they do audit. And as the church can sometimes be in the spotlight for different political reasons, we always want to be um, compliant with the Minnesota Department of um, Homeland Security and Immigration. It's not an optional document. Yes? I'm sorry, I just had a question about the I-9. The I-9, you just do it once when they're hired, right? And you don't have to do it every again. But the W-4, are we supposed to do it every year or whenever the employee wants to make a change? The W-4 is required when they want to make a change and at the beginning of um, their payroll. So before you ever pay them, that W-4 has to be in place. And if they make a change, it does not need to be renewed. Okay, mm -hmm. so like if we hired them five years ago, we don't have to renew it unless they want to. Correct. Yeah, you definitely should not make changes to it without their written consent. Yeah, yep. Their consent would be a new W-4 with their signature on it. And it happens, we have employees come to us and say, oh, I didn't know I did that. And you can print out the document and show them that they did, right? So the, yeah. I'm sorry. No, good. We already moved on to the I-9, but it was what W-4, I didn't raise my hand early enough. Um, for pastors who are only paid a housing allowance, so it's not tax, is a W-4 required? Good question. You'll have to consult your tax professional on that one. I don't know the answer to that. We have every single employee. If they go on payroll, they complete it. I would say you should and have something on file. Again, like if you were ever to do a bonus or you would do like that has to be taxed. Like if you pay them out in any other way, even if it's not a salary, if there's any other compensation that you give them, um, I would still defer to a tax professional, but I would, I would tell you from your perspective, I would always make it one for everyone, even if, or what if, are you gonna remember to do it again when maybe they start getting paid more and it's not housing? 
Yeah. You have to have that paperwork on file. That's a good point. That answer that? Okay, so I-9, um, just keep in mind when you print out your I-9 for employees, they should have that completed on their first day of employment. And if you haven't been keeping track of your I-9s, you haven't been completing them, go back and do it. Get it on file. And then they will give you the document that's acceptable and remember that you're the one um, saying that it was official in your eyes, as official as it could be. So when you as the employer sign that I-9, you are saying, and it's right there in print on the I-9, I have inspected the documents and verified to the best of my ability these are authentic. Which so. means you should not accept a scan. Correct. You need to see the physical document. You'll have people that say, oh, I forgot, I can't bring it in, can I just send you a picture? No, I have to touch it. I have to be the one, and then you'll scan it. Yep. Yep. You'll scan those documents. Very good question. You do keep record of all the documents that are used in support of the I-9, copies of that. I just, on the passport page, I open it up to the picture page, give a copy of that. And driver's license, social security, driver's license, do the front and the back. Birth certificate, just the one side. And did you see the I-9 the I-9 is a requirement, yes. So if you don't already have it on file for anyone who's on your payroll, not vendors, but anyone who's on your church payroll, do that. Do that next week. <laughs> Go back and print out those I-9s. There's actually a fillable form on the um, irs.gov website, uscis.gov, rather. And really moving forward, they should not be working until you have that. Oh, please. <laughs> I'm serious, like I'll tell my, my job before this one, I thought I had the original, so I mean, I, again, I'm in HR, it was HR, and they sent me home and said, sorry, you can come back tomorrow with the document. That is actually the legal line that we should be drawing, is until they give you that physical thing, they are not working as an employee. That's correct, you do it once. You'll, they'll complete their I-9 when um, they start with you, when they join your payroll, and then you do not need to renew it. The point of the I-9 is showing that they're legally eligible to work in the United States. Once you've established that, that should continue. The document, though, that we'll talk about next that you do need to renew is the wage theft notice. That's a new notice that came out, I believe it was three and a half years ago in the state of Minnesota, um, requiring basically requiring the employer to communicate to the employee what their compensation agreement is. And so I know we have offer letters and things and sometimes those will cover the same information, but just to be safe, what I use, I don't know if you use this, Danette, but I print it out right from the um, dli.mn.gov website. And then again, this will be on that resource sheet you can reference. Um, I print theirs out. I'm like, what could be better then? Then I'm audit proof, right? If I'm using their form. Um, so the pro tips on that, it's required, it should be done on their first day, again, before they work, part of your onboarding process, and um, it becomes part of their permanent employee record, and HR is required to provide employees in writing any changes that happen during the course of employment. We've had discussions on practice, like, if you give someone a raise, do you redo that Minnesota wage theft document? Some people say they do, some people say they don't. I can't speak to advice on that, 
but definitely have it done at the beginning of their employment and part of their permanent employee record. Yeah, sound good? Um, the employee handbook, ready to go there? Questions on anything else? Okay, the employee handbook. Um, this is such a broad question. We all have questions on what policies that we want to enforce, what's important to your church, what are you going to include, and so I'm just going to give you a high view and a resource list. You definitely want your handbook um, to include policies on FLSA, FMLA, ethical conduct, your harassment policy, what are you going to do about it if an employee is harassed, showing the employee your policy, um, your PTO policy, an ADA, American Disabilities Act, at a minimum. So those would be the minimum things. And again, that's listed on the sheet here. And a great resource is at tmn.gov. And I have the website listed here on your resource sheet. So the, they have a policies and rules section. And you can click any topic. It's a great resource. You're like, how do I write my PTO policy? What's required? You know, do you know things like you're not required by law to give PTO? You know, which things fall into employer discretion and which things fall under the Minnesota Department of Labor um, requirements? And some things you think that might be required by law really aren't, you know? Um, so it's helpful to peruse that website. It's a great resource. And then um, if you're gonna make changes to your employee handbook, well, let me back up. You want an employee handbook signature sheet, and I've got an example of the sheet itself in the little stand there, um, and you can find it also on Department of Labor website, but they require that during your onboarding, you're gonna have the employee sign that, and it says, I either have access, I've been given a login to view it electronically, or I've been handed a physical copy of it. So your handbook is your contract between you and the employee. It helps them know what to expect, and it helps you communicate your expectations to them. So the handbook, if you're gonna make updates to it, you just need to make a notice. Do an email, an all staff notice, and then you save that as part of your of your personal HR record that you can say, yes, I notified employees when we eliminated PTO, or yes, I notified employees when we changed this policy. You don't need to redistribute the handbook or uh, recapture a signature in most circumstances. And I think that's it for the um, yeah. Question. section on those resources. Yeah. Um, so I work in a small church, and we work with other small churches. We have multiple campuses. Um, and my heart is to equip small churches to do things well. Um, but in small churches, many of us only have a couple employees. Like, why do I need to write a employee handbook? Like, you're good, we're good, we're good. Right? That's usually kind of how it goes in small churches. Um, but my goal is to help small churches do things well. Is there any precedent or any big reason why we need to do things like a church got sued or you can get in trouble? Like, is, can you give us an example of why these things are so important? I know they're best practices, and I know we should, but can you give me any like thing that I can go back to my team and say, we have to do this? Why? So the question is, for the podcast, um, why should we have these policies in place? Um, what's the worst case scenario, if you will? Um, so think it. Think up your worst case scenario and it's happened. So somewhere it's happened. Someone, some church has spent all kinds of money on attorneys. 
defending the fact that they do not discriminate against disabled people in their hiring practices. Someone who did not get a job, that wanted a job, the spouse of someone that, who you may have hired that has a problem because they hear how things are run there and they might have enough information to um, pursue something that could cause harm to the church. Um, if it happens, if you're, there's an accusation that gets out there and someone retains legal representation or the Department of Labor has wind of it and you're on their radar, you've already lost a significant investment of time and money because you'll have to at least retain an attorney to defend yourself. And then that doesn't even speak to the community impact, the reputation of the church, when questions and rumors get going. In human resources, your job is to understand your full exposure and minimize it. And now some leadership will say, I'm willing to be exposed to this or this. We all pick, just like when we build our um, property and liability policies, we pick our level of exposure, right? Your job in leading human resources is to expose the full extent of the exposure, the risk. So your, your leadership knows what they're being exposed to. That answer that? Okay. I'd love to defer. <laughs> I know, I would too. So, so he's actually doing a presentation right after us about legal compliance. Um, is an attorney, so I would love to see if you have extra you want to add. I'll just add this. I think one of the most important things yes. that small churches, thank you for coming closer. Yes. Uh, one of the key things that small churches tend to not always prioritize is the fact that People are people. Um, you can't always account for the decisions they're going to make in the moment. And whenever somebody is in an enraged and upset state, they're going to start pursuing all those options. And at some point, they may get it in their mind and say, well, what are my legal rights in this case? And as <laughs> Tamara and as Danette have pointed out, at that point, you've lost. And yes, it's a lot of box checking, and I understand I work with a lot of small businesses and a lot of churches, and it seems very uh, burdensome, to say the least, but it's one of those, if you can take care of it, and you know, the 20 minutes of box checking is worth eliminating significant amount of risk. So that's the reason I, I always tell people, yes, Check the boxes. It saves you time, risk, and money. So, thank well, you. I can tell you the amount of time you spend right now establishing it when you have an, a set of employees of 5, 10, 15 is much less than you're going to have to do to try to implement it if you're at 15, 20, 25. The more staff you add, the harder this becomes to go backwards and try to implement. The first few days, somebody's on your team, they're excited to be on their team, and they are happy to provide you with whatever you ask of them. Once they've been on your team for a while, and they get to perform their job, and they've got all the things that they need to perform their job, there just is a reality that it's harder to get things out of them. And so even from a, a workload of you, as much as it seems a lot now, it will be more the longer you wait. Um, there was a church that um, didn't have an employee handbook and didn't have any of these rules and expectations set out. And uh, it was a church of about 1,500 people. And within two months, 
the whole entire church was just obliterated and all everybody was gone because there was no expectations and some things went down and nobody was like how do we actually deal with this what are the expectations that we had set and it was just one word against another word so i've seen it firsthand how important it is to have this like written out so you can go back later look at a piece of paper and be like this is what we agreed upon either you're done or you need to adjust how you're communicating because then you get the whole rivalry between your whole entire congregation of some people agree with one side some people agree with the other and so it's nice to just have that piece of paper that's like this is what we believe and this is what we agreed to at the start of your uh employee so yeah that's great i love that thank you for sharing yes thank you was that helpful Yeah, if you go to the it's all good. If you go to the Department of Labor website, it's going to give you all kinds of ammunition <laughs> to say. Yeah. Yes. AI, Chat, GPT. I know. I use it every day. I know it up from grammar to <laughs> again not a replacement for legal advice. <laughs> Chat GPT. It'll change your life. It will change your life. It's uh, like a little assistant. It's like Google on steroids, sort of. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. They're going to be charging us a hundred bucks a month for it at some point, I suppose. But right now there is a free, free resource. If I can encourage you, um, there's always going to be an element of that question you're going to receive no matter what size church you are. If you continue to grow, whether it's, whether it's two or five or a hundred, like there's still, there's always, there's always that challenge in HR of what is our level of risk? What are we willing to take? And there is an element where at times leadership, it, it's their job to make that assumption of risk and to make that ultimate decision but it's your job to ensure that they understand what that level of risk is. And as much as you can, like, the, like if there's anything that I would tell you, do your best due diligence to make them aware of every single level of risk. Do as much as you can on your own. Take the initiative. Do all of that. But at the end of the day, there is an, there is an ownership that, that your lead pastor or your senior pastor, whatever you call it, that, that they're taking in that. But it's your job to make sure that they understand what that level of risk is and that you have done your due diligence in making sure that you've done everything you can to protect your church. And they just need to hear your heart in that. Honestly, like, they know it, but as much as they understand, like, I'm, I just, I just, it only takes one. I've said this so many times, I tell people, I'm like, it only takes one person. So I'm here to, I'm here to protect the church and ensure that we can continue to do ministry, and this is important to do that. That's great. So. All right, should we move awesome. on to... Are you ready to move on a little bit? So I'm going to, um, just so you know, I don't know that I'm going to cover necessarily that element. Yeah. Well, that's necessary. But sure. I'm going to talk a little bit about salary versus hourly. I feel like this is one of those, and even contractor versus employee, this is one of those that I feel like comes up so much in the church, and um, man, we could spend an entire hour talking about that. So um, again, this is one of those things where I get when you have a small staff, the default is probably we're going to pay somebody a salary. Here's what you get, and um, maybe we'll get some extra hours out of you, right? Like, I think that's just that's the church world. But 
there's, there's um, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about independent contractor versus employee first, and then I'll go into the salary versus hourly. So contractor versus employee. So um, the, the IRS does have guidelines as to whether somebody is a contractor or an employee. And much of that is looking at what is the, the relationship between the church and the individual. How much control does the church have over the work that's being performed by the individual? And if you've, if you've been around for a while, you might have heard like the 20 factor test that the IRS had. A few years ago, they actually kind of revamped that and they took the same concept, but they narrowed it down to three basic areas of control. There's behavioral, there's financial, and then there's the relationship of the parties. So behavioral, how much control do you have over the um, when, where, how, what that the work is done. So do you provide training on how to do the work? Do they have to do it at a certain time, at a certain place versus on their own time? Um, are you specific? Do you, is it important to you that this one person is the person that does the work or can anybody on their team do the work, right? Um, though if, if they're full-time staff, they work full-time, all of these things that I'm saying are things that the more you say yes to in these, the more likely someone needs to be an employee and not a contractor. So there isn't like one and done, well if one of them is yes, that that automatically means they're an employee or vice versa, but you're really looking at the whole scope of it. And again, as you think about if somebody feels like they've been inappropriately paid, do you, do you have enough data on all of these elements to justify which classification you've given them? So uh, behavioral is one, financial. So who provides the tools or resources? Do they, computer, you can just think of computer, right? Do they provide the computer or are you providing them the computer? If, you know, whatever the tools that they're using to do the work. Um, if they have an assistant or if they have somebody that works with them, who's paying that person? Is it you or is it them? If there's an ability, now this is, I get that this is less likely in a church, but it is still there. If there's, a, if there's an option for a financial profit or loss from something, who, who gets that? Who gets the loss or who gets the profit? If they mess up on something, is it on them or now does the church take the hit? Um, or even if there's, if there's expenses, whether it be traveling or business expenses to do the work that they're doing, who covers those expenses? The more of those things that you have control over and you have say over, the more often that person is, should be an employee classification. Um, and then you also look at relationships. So um, do you have a written contract with them? Okay, written contract does typically more often defer to a contractor, but it's not the only thing. Um, is the work ongoing? If it's a project-based versus if it's ongoing and we're, we're having you do this forever, that veers more towards employee. Um, how integral is it to your ministry, to your business? If, if it's integral to what you are doing, again, it leans more towards employee. Um, and another big one is, do they do this work or service for somebody outside of your church? Great example for me that's an easy example. We're in Minnesota. We probably have people who do snow plowing for our church, right? So if, it's an, if you're hiring somebody who's coming and snow plowing your drive and they go and do multiple businesses in multiple locations, obviously that's a contractual relationship. If you're hiring somebody in your church who just has a snow plow in the front of their pickup and you're hiring them to come do it, 
might not be a contractor. Again, there's other elements to think about, but that's one that I feel like is more easily tangible for people. So those are all things that, that you have to think about. Like I said, it's not a one and a done. It's not an automatic, oh, obviously, if, if one of these is checked, that means they're that. Um, again, like you think of a snowplow. You do probably tell them when you need them to snowplow because you have an event at 9 a.m. and they need to come plow before then and they're coming to your facility to do it, okay? So it's not like it's a one and done, but we're looking at that whole picture. Um, so, and then, so I'm gonna shift from that. Is there any questions about that piece? before I move on. I have a question. So when we have somebody come and actually they mow our lawn, this person in our church, and we so enter 99, is that okay for them? Because they they janitor stuff too, they just clean up their space. So a ten ninety nine is what you pay for a contractor. So if, if you're paying if you're if you're giving them a ten ninety nine that means they're con you're you're setting their standards as contractor. If it's a W-2, it's an employee. So by you saying 1099, that means you declare them as a contractor. Yeah, I was just gonna add to that. I think one thing that's very important that is not entirely discussed here, but it's the intention of the party into what employment status that wants to be formed is not controlling, which is how you get into that 20 factor test and other forms of uh, identification, uh, but it is a very relevant piece in consideration. So if your church is saying, you know, we, we don't want you to be a full-time or to consider you employed, that intention is relevant. So now if, again, if somebody comes sniffing around and says, are you an employee, are you a contractor, I think that makes a difference. And, and then you're probably gonna have to go through those things. So again, start with what's our intention here, then go to, uh, from there, what's uh, the factors relevant to whether this, someone is an employee or a contractor specifically? Does that? Does that help? Or would you? What, what would you <laughs> guide her as far as for somebody who is mowing their lawn? So in, in, in the church, right? Do you think? Yes, and she also does her janitor. She's a janitor too. She's not an employee though. Okay. So it sounds like from what I'm hearing, the initial plan was that this person serves as a 1099 contractor of the church. Um, again, there are other factors I'd want you as the church to go and consider and maybe write up into the HR file of said person and say, this supports our conclusion that this person is a 1099 contractor rather than an employee. That gives you a basis. So, yeah. The one thing I would, I would yeah. think about personally when I hear that, that, that probably makes me a little bit more nervous with them being a about those are both situations that are more physically labor elements where there's a risk of, of injury. Um, and when you get into those scenarios, um, does this person have their own liability insurance? Because if they don't, even if they're a contractor, you are liable for something that happens on your property. So um, something that would, that like, if you, again, you may not have workers' compensation insurance, but I won't get into too much there, but if you, if, when you have workers' compensation insurance, your insurance company is gonna do an audit once a year, and they're gonna ask about contractors that you have, and the reason that they ask about contractors is because they're gonna wanna see 
proof of their liability insurance that they hold. If they don't have liability insurance, they're gonna charge you for insurance of what you pay them because they can come back and file an injury claim on your workers' comp, even if they're a contractor, if they don't have limited liability insurance. So in a scenario where it's only one person, maybe that's all that they do, I'm gonna guess that they probably don't, and now there's, there's just that risk you're choosing to take, right, between those two. And especially when it's something like a, a custodial and, and they're both physical and there's just a greater risk of injury. Um, I can tell you our, our CFO told a story, which was super helpful to me because I said these things and um, eventually he told a story of somebody who was even a childcare worker that, that got injured and they didn't, they were treating them as 1099s and not employees. Um, and the church lost an insane amount of money in medical bills because of that scenario. Um, because they were lifting something up or doing something, fell, had serious injury, had a surgery, it kind of snowballed into all these things that, that really was a tough impact on the church. And so just, just as you think about, again, there's a constant balance of what's our risk. That's just a risk management consideration that I would, I would advise. And I would add on your insurance renewal when you do your property and liability, these are really good questions too for your insurance company. Say, hey, what is our coverage for volunteers, for you know, what's on our policy, what's our, what are our limits, and have them weigh in too on, because they know your size of your property and you know, they'll be able to better advise too on what coverages you might want. I'll, I'll table that for now. You sure? I'm good. Okay. <laughs> All right, anything else before I'm going to kind of just jump into the salary versus hourly, non-exempt, exempt thing? Yeah. on exempt versus non-exempt. Now I would say most people, when they think exempt versus non-exempt, they think salary versus hourly. They actually are not exactly the same. There is a caveat there, but for the most part in this initial part, I'll kind of get to it, but initial part, I am gonna kind of keep them in the same vein just to make sense, but there is, they're not exactly the same. So I just have to put that caveat out there. But um, really the default for most employees should be that they make at least a minimum wage and that they are paid for overtime, which means any hours over 40 hours. And that usually is more treated on a, like a non-exempt. Um, when you think about that, you think about people who are paid per hour, they punch a time clock, like that is your non-exempt employees. 
Let's um, add non-exempt means they are not exempt from overtime. Exempt means they don't get overtime. So just so we sometimes. Yep, yep, yep. that's right. <laughs> so add that um, in. Yeah, so, so when we say, talk about, again, so I'm saying most people think of these as, as congruent. They're not always. Um, but in order for you to determine if somebody qualifies to be treated as exempt, meaning you don't have to do the overtime, you don't have to pay them for overtime, whatever. There are two big pieces that you, they have to meet. Both of them, not just one. So there is a minimum wage that they have to make. Now, right now, that wage is $684 a week, which if you take that times 52 equals 35,568. So it's like 35,6. They have to meet that requirement of salary. Um, now, that usually changes. So again, each year you kind of want to monitor what that number is because the DOL will change that as cost of, cost of living increases, right? So, um, but they have to be paid at least that minimum. And then they also have to meet one of the following exemptions. There is executive, there's professional, and under professional is learned and creative. Um, people who are, have like, a license for a set thing, they have education, they have specific training, um, creative, I think more of like a designer, marketing, like very specific. Um, there is also actually computer, um, which may apply for some people in your team. There's a sales one, I'm not gonna assume that's gonna apply most of the time in the church. And then there's highly compensated employees. And there's parameters of that. I actually just printed out a, a true um, brochure that actually is from um, Department of Labor, I believe, to, to help you see that. But you can also look that up. Um, I'm not going to dive into each of one of necessarily the details of those, but they have to meet both of those um, in order to be considered exempt from that overtime. Now, there are people who do manual labor, or what we would typically call like blue-collar employees. So in a church world, most of the time, this is things like administrative assistants, custodials, um, like childcare workers, food service workers if you have food service, um, but there can be others of them. But those are typically what you might see, but they are ones who have repetitive movement with their hands, physical skills, and energy. Regardless of what they're paid, they need to be treated as hourly employees and they qualify for overtime. The only time that, that, that they then move out of that is if they switch to a managerial role over employees who are doing that, then they can switch into that salary. But if they are physically doing that work, it doesn't matter if they're paid over the 35568 Like It's not like you can use that as your caveat. They do need to be paid hourly, um, meaning they should be punching a clock, ideally. Right? Um, so if... Um, I'm trying to think of how to, I kind of reference that salary and non-exempt are not the same thing. So you can choose to do salary for a person if they, but you still have to have them track their hours. And if they go over 40, you still have to pay them for overtime. So that'd be the salary non-exempt. The salary non-exempt. So that does exist. I'm, it's, it's complicated there's so many caveats here 
Um, so I'm hesitant, but I do want you guys to understand that even if you pay somebody salary and you feel like, like you have to be able to justify exemptions in order for them not to have overtime. Just by paying them salary and making over 35-6 doesn't mean you don't have to pay them overtime. You have to justify with exemptions. So your salary hourly is how you pay them and exempt, non-exempt is your classification, if that's two different so buckets. Do, if they work less than 40 hours or less, you don't have to pay overtime. Overtime comes into play when they work over 40 hours in a week. So I'll just say this is employment law is not my full forte. Um, I would if that's that sounds like a precarious situation to be taking that anything above 40 um, with smaller organizations you are able to get away with a lot more. Um, I'm not saying you should, but uh, it might also be one of those things you. I would highly advise you to reconsider that stance and to look at uh, just make talk with a, an employment law professional. Um, I know enough that I'm going to stop myself <laughs> here, which is usually a good place for any professional yes. who's not that's not their full expertise. So. So I will tell you there are different perspectives out there when it comes to pastoral salary. So um, with pastoral, um, especially if they move into housing allowance, they're, they're considered partially self-employed by the IRS. And so that is where the, where the um, decision for some people have come in around doing salary hourly. Um, I'm hesitant to say yes or no. I would say that it, this is, again, one of those things as we talk about risk management, paying an employment attorney is not cheap. <laughs> but it's always, we, you, you, the more you dive into it, the more you realize there is a benefit of seeking that professional because if 
somebody comes back and decides to question the church on how they were being paid, if you've consulted with an attorney beforehand as that's determined, um, then that attorney is able to quickly respond as well to that risk to that. And so I would probably defer you as much to, to speak with an employment specific attorney because I don't know what is being communicated to each of those employees as far as expectations and hours and all those things. So there's so much that comes into play that I'm hesitant to say yes or no, but I would tell you that it does exist out there where there is some adjustments based on the pastoral status. I can speak to your, you said your position, half pastoral, half administrative. Well, if they're in the same ministry area, you can combine them into, pastors have administrative duties, you know, so you could combine them all and then you have the full salary available for the minister's housing allowance. But also a more conservative approach is you have two job descriptions. Your, the pastoral position is clergy exempt and your housing allowance is eligible to the top of that clergy salary. And then you have the second position of um, non-exempt hourly. And then you would be eligible for um, overtime at a interesting rate that my payroll company figured out for me and I can't quote it, <laughs> I'm not sure, but it is at the 40 hour mark. It wouldn't be at that administrative role once that does 40 plus your 20 hour clergy. It would be at that 40, you'd be eligible for overtime, but it's at a different rate. It's calculated by the payroll company. I can't really speak to that because ours figured it out for us. Um, but it's, I don't know if it's somewhere in between the two rates or if it was the higher of the two. I can't recall how they, what the, there's rules and regulations for it. But, um, so I think you have some options there based on what the duties, the administrative duties are. Oh, we're getting close. Yeah, so the, I'm going to cover two quick things on the hourly and then um, I'm not sure if we want to do open. We're already 10 yeah. minutes left. Okay. So, um, there's only two things that I'm going I'm to call out on hourly employees because I feel like it's often misunderstood. So typically an hourly uh, payroll is a two-week period, so they're paid for 40 hours. Somebody cannot work 50 hours one week and only 30 hours the next week and not be paid overtime. That is not legal. So they have to be paid in the hours that they work in a calendar week. So for that one, you could say... Hey, if you want to only work 30 hours for, to gain rest next week, like after you've had a really heavy week, you can say that and you can make that adjustment. But for that first week, they're paid 40 hours of their normal. They're paid time and a half overtime for those 10 hours. And then they're paid their normal for the 30 to second week. They, it's not overtime within a two-week pay period. It's overtime within each week. So whatever your calendar week is, that that is... Definitely something that I feel like is misunderstood a lot. And so um, I just want to make sure you guys get that. Also, um, I think there's sometimes, especially when it's um, smaller locations where there's a tendency to, to almost like hang somebody's pay over them in an effort to get them to complete their time card. So like, well, if you don't complete your time card, I'm just not going to pay you. That's actually not allowed. <laughs> So it is still on, we look, we, you may look to the employee to complete the time card, but it is on you as the employer to do your due diligence in making every effort to pay that employee for the hours worked. So at a minimum, you should be paying them for the hours that they are scheduled to work, um, or you, you need to be reaching out to them, you need to be making an effort, you need to be doing something and do your due diligence and show that you've done your due diligence 
to pay them appropriately. You don't get to just say, oh, they didn't take their time card and I'm not gonna pay them. So we're not allowed to do that either. So um, I just have to put those two out there because I feel like those come up a lot. So um, we have so much stuff to Can cover, you guys. I think I wanted to, yep. th this is my favorite part of human resources, so I cannot let you leave without sharing this next section. This is what I'm absolutely excited about the most. I'm gonna cover the resources, the nuts and bolts, really quick. Um, get your staff values in order. Get your mission statement in order with your church. Um, collaborate it with your lead pastor. Um, it should reflect your goals as well as your practices. Um, say them, speak them out loud, celebrate them, and most importantly, model them. Get it on paper. It can be as simple as this. These are my staff values at Emmanuel. They're just listed out right here, and these are written on my wall. I have a Cricut master on our staff. She does amazing work with Cricut, and we label everything. And I have it right on my wall, all those five um, staff values. And then at our staff meetings, we celebrate them. We acknowledge people. Hey, here's five bucks to Starbucks. You know, you modeled the um, team value in an amazing way. Um, your employee code of conduct also, just to add this in really quick because I'm going fast, have an employee code of conduct. Communicate to your employees, have them sign it at onboarding. Make sure it's clear, talk about it at the interview. Make sure they understand you expect them to tithe if you do to your church. Make sure they understand that you, you won't have someone who's, you know, if your policy is no drinking, that they're agreeing to that. Make, just make sure these expectations um, are clearly communicated. They're gonna save you from a lot of awkward conversations. The first time we talk to them, we show them our code of conduct. And we say, this will be what you will have to sign if you come on the staff. Please read through it and communicate back to us. If you're, if you're comfortable, if you have any questions, we kind of go through it, explain it. If you have any questions, talk to us. We're happy to answer them. If you're, if you're comfortable signing it and willing it, then we can move on to the next step in the process. So there's no chance that, they're gonna, that, that it's a surprise to them in the first day you present it, and they're like, what? So just, it's been one of the best moves we've made. Yes. One, one quick thing on that. We had a situation two years ago where there was a, nowhere had it been written about same-sex relationships. And one of the pastoral team kind of started having some things with that and couldn't find it. Legally, couldn't really do anything about it. And so I would really encourage you guys, it's just, you would have never guessed that it happened. Even in a smaller church, it's like, oh, that'll never happen. Well, it did. And it has, and it's mm -hmm. happened a lot. Mm -hmm. And so, especially with how legal things are now, it's very difficult to fire someone for that situation. So throw that in your code of conduct, or throw that in something that someone signs in your handbook or whatever, because that's something that's becoming a bigger deal nowadays more than ever. So. And that can also be an issue with your, have a building use agreement. If you're allowing community groups to use your building, have a building use agreement that says, talk to your insurance company. They'll help you build it. They have one, they have a template that says that all activities must um, you know, support the ministry missions of our church. And that also so that you don't have groups outside saying, um, why can't we hold this in this convention here? You allowed this group, you allowed the Salvation Army to come in, things like that. Okay, let's talk about culture. Free things, okay, this is from the dollar store, right? Is this your first time at Staff Chapel? Yes, it is your first time at Staff Chapel. Woo! Let's give it up. Hey, have you been working here for a year already? 
Look at my dollar store balloon. Okay, wear it. Hang it in your office. We want to see it because then everyone that comes by is going to celebrate you and your first work anniversary of doing an awesome job for our church. So there, celebrate your milestones. Build your culture in ways that are, communicate your staff values that you already developed and they match your mission statement that's on your wall. Maybe your, your mission statement. It doesn't have to be um, expensive. You can print it in your bulletin. You can. This is an old one of ours. You can put it on your materials your letterhead at the bottom of your letterhead. Find all sorts of little cheap ways to sneak it in wherever you can get that in there. Develop that culture so that people say, I want to work there. What is that excitement they have? What is that energy they have? And this dovetails into the things that you can do to build your compensation package. Employees want to be somewhere where they like working with the people and they like the place they go to work. They like the environment. So build an environment. As HR, you're the leader. Work with your lead pastor, work with your leadership, ask, find their heart and spirit at Emmanuel. Our lead pastor is all about growth and joy and excellence. And so we're always spurring each other on. He's such a coach kind of personality. And so that's our, that's our culture. We're a coach, we're a coach kind of environment where people are learning and growing and we're challenging one another. Um, that's gonna build your um, culture. There's other things that you can offer your employees too. Um, on the sheet over there on the counter. You can take it home. Here's all the high points. I'm just going to run through them for sake of time so that you can ask questions. Um, medical. I don't know if you offer medical to your staff, but it's never been a better time to build a flexible package. The market is so creative between HSAs and HSAs and um, multi-plans that have different tiers and things. Your broker can work with you. Find a plan that works for your team because people are looking for benefits. It's a great way to enhance your overall compensation package. PTO. Maybe you can be flexible. Pay time May off. Huh? Paid time off. Yes, paid time off. We don't use vacation and sick anymore. They're all lumped into, this was guided by the Minnesota Department of Labor, we use paid time off. So PTO is paid time off. It includes the bucket, for us at least, of sick and vacation time. Um, look what works for your organization. Is this an area where you're like, you know what, I can't raise my compensation, but I can offer so-and-so an extra week of PTO. We're so slow in the summer, she's hardly working anyway. Well, go ahead and frame that. One minute. Okay, go ahead and frame that. Make that a PTO policy. Make it a win. Now you're offering something that they're already doing, but you've packaged it, right? And now it's a part of their compensation package. Um, training. Talk to them. Talk to your employees about growth opportunities. Employees want to work where they're growing. You'll hear it's a common reason. It's one of the top three why people leave our organizations and reduce our retention rate or increase our retention rate. Um, train them. You don't have to pay for expensive webinars. We have resources like um, Linda and Coursera, and then maybe your insurance brokers might offer free courses that your employees can do, or you may have someone on staff who's an expert in something, or the neighboring church up the road, and you guys can collaborate and just provide growth opportunities, mentorship opportunities. Your employees will um, appreciate that. And then tying into it, flexibility. Give your employees some flexibility. If Susie can come in at nine and stay till six because she's got to get her kids to daycare, offer it up. Make it, make it so that it's coming from you. Initiate those things. Know your team, know their lives, get invested in what's going on so you can offer the most flexible options to your employees. It will have an added value that won't cost you at all. Employee turnover is what's gonna cost you. So, all right. I'm do one quick caveat. Just she mentioned your insurance broker a couple times. I know that feels really scary 
brokers actually get their benefit back from the insurance companies that you sign on with. So you're not necessarily, there's many of them, you're not paying a fee to utilize them. They, they get their fee, you, you, you get disclosed and you receive money from them. But usually that's paid by the provider of the insurance, not by you. So don't be afraid to utilize them. You don't have Um, and then we want to be resourced. Again, we're, we're professionals trying to help professionals, so we're not legal experts, but um, we're happy to share our contact information. We're happy to, to answer questions if we have a few minutes. The next session starts at 1115. We encourage you to, to hang out and join that, but um, we're happy to be a help and a resource to you as much as we can. So thank you for coming. Yes, thank, thank you, everybody. Yeah.